now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning layer ones to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava protocol and Hard protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Celo is a mobile-first platform that makes financial dApps and crypto payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone, providing the opportunity to positively impact the users of 6 billion smartphones in circulation today. Celo's eco-friendly proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and ultra-mobile light client makes up to 17,000 times faster than other blockchains and accessible to mobile phone users around the world. Visit Celo.org to learn more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Scott, who's the founder of Kava. Scott, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me on. So, Scott, when did you get into crypto? Uh, so, I got into crypto professionally in 2017. Uh, nice. Sort nice. of like early 2017. Is that like, uh, I mean, I was around a similar time. Were you like Bitcoin 20K? Around that time, or that might have been 18, actually. Prior to that, prior to that, prior okay. to that. Earlier than that, come on. Um, yeah, no, I'm glad. Yeah, and uh, I I got into crypto. So it's something that I had been watching um, for a while, obviously. And um, yeah, and then I decided to do that um, as I was transitioning from a previous uh, ad tech company that I built. That's awesome. Well, well tell me a bit about your background. Um, what did you do before you got into crypto? What drove you here? Uh, it'd be helpful. Yeah. Um, so professionally, I, I started off actually doing internet poker. So I played internet poker professionally, like in the early or in the sort of mid to late zeros. I don't know what people call it, knots. And that was basically when that that was starting to take off. So that was a kind of newer technology in the sense that, you know, you could play this game internationally with people for money. And I was, you know, whatever, a teenager. So that was pretty great uh, way to just sort of wake up, manage your capital. And, uh, and then it was in about 2011, it's like April, 2011 or 2012, that black Friday or whatever, when the U S justice department basically cut off the, uh, the financial rails to these different websites. And so the pro players had to, uh, go out of the country, um, to do it mostly. And there was actually, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's like this introduction of Bitcoin, uh, into that into that ecosystem as a means of payment, basically getting around the, uh, uh, what the, uh, justice department had imposed on the banking rails. So there are a number of kind of early 
Bitcoin OGs who came from the the poker scene to think that way. No, you're you're totally right. I meet a ton of people in crypto from either poker, a lot of EDM artists, house music. Um, it's exciting who you meet. So I mean, walk through a bit of the elevator pitch for Kava. I mean, we're gonna go through the the whole walkthrough, all the products, but just to set the stage, what's the elevator pitch for Kava? Well, so for Kava, the 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 platform really it's around safety. So Kava itself as a platform is competing against Ethereum, Solana, Polkadot, Cardano, if you want to say, Polygon. It's not um, a secret that the main usage today is in uh, this thing that we now, now call DeFi and that Ethereum has the lion's share of usage and money and that there are currently some problems with that system. And so you have these incom- the, you have these competitors basically racing to steal as much users and money as they can, uh, while that machine is you know somewhat not functioning at 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 peak capacity. And so different competitors will have their uh, advantage, right? They'll have their their basically the, their angle on how um, they're going to win or compete, and Kava's is in safety and reliability. That's awesome. So Kava is its own chain built with the Cosmos SDK. Which what's the high level on Cosmos's chain? Or sorry, on Kava's chain. I got confused with the Cosmos SDK there. Yeah, so it is. And it's interesting when you when you look at the construction of these different of these different competitors. So Kava, so if you look at Ethereum, right? Ethereum and any of these blockchains are basically a peer-to-peer layer. So um, it's a way to message in a you know decentralized capacity. And then there's an application layer built on top. And so for um, Ethereum, it's the EVM. Uh, so Kava uses Tendermint as its consensus machine, um, essentially. And then we use uh, the Cosmos SDK as uh, the app, quote, application layer on top of it. If you look at, uh, for instance, Polygon's design, which I think is a really clever design, it uses the, uh, it uses the Tendermint machine for uh, peer-to-peer communication with the EVM layer on top of it. You can contrast that to something like uh, Binance's smart chain, which uses the EVM, um, but underneath does not use Tendermint. Um, they sort of tried to cobble Ethereum's peer-to-peer machine uh, with their kind of proof of authority setup. And it's interesting when you look at it because they were having some network uh, issues around that. Tendermint's pretty solid. For, for the for that proof of stake model, got it. And I mean, so the decision to build on Cosmos, what were I guess what were the driving factors there? Was it from the yeah. safety perspective? Well, so the, yeah, so this is back in 2017, actually. So it was it was somewhat less clear back then what to use. And I remember at the time we were talking to uh, Charles and some of those guys at IOHK for what they were doing with uh, Daedalus and the stuff around their uh, proof of stake. We were talking to oh, blanking on the name. Uh, Casper guy, uh, Vlad, Vlad. Yep. So, nice. right. So it's 2017, right? So like, what's going to, who, what's going to be the thing? We don't know. It's a different world um, back then. People didn't know where, what to build on, where to build. It was very different. Yeah. Um, well, and so kind of going back just very briefly, going like tying in the, the sort of like, who is, um, Scott thing. I mean, after the poker thing, I did an ad tech thing and then looked around and did this and, um, kind of what I would say that I've, come to specialize in is trying to understand newer technologies and newer industries. That's something that I like. And 
part of that process is an investigation process of filtering noise, right? Because in new things, there is noise. And so it's sort of figuring out and placing a bet on what's the thing versus what's not the thing. And so a tactic uh, that I've learned is, you know, it's that kind of Toyota way, right? It's go and, and look at it, meet it, see what it, see what Vlad is, <laughs> what's like actually behind this thing um, to, to effectively place a bet on what technology you're going to go with. Um, and at the time, Tendermint was basically the most proven out, longest lasting thing. Um, it made sense to us. We kind of liked it. Yeah, there are some pros and cons to using the Cosmos SDK. And then now there's definitely, pro- I can talk more about pros and cons of using the SDK today, you know, three years later. But that, that was, those were sort of the reasons. There was some stuff like the IBC sort of vision around connecting blockchains, but really we were just looking for like, you know, a, a nice piece of software that we didn't have to, you know, reinvent from the ground up. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, back in 2017, I always thought of Polkadot and Cosmos as competing as the competing bridges of the future. And meanwhile, yeah. they turned into their own layer ones in a way. I'd love to kind of zoom, just take a step back and zoom out for a minute. You guys have a lot of, or several different products and offerings that I'd love to go through. Yeah. Um, I'll let you go off from here and you know start where you'd like, but would love to kind of go through each product and then we could kind of dive into uh, Kava Swap where I want to spend a lot of time as well. Yeah, and I think it might just be useful to sort of frame how we're going about how Kava, the community, is going about solving uh, this problem of usage um, as opposed to some of the other competitors. I mean, really, Kava's kind of Kava's core positioning is going out there and saying that safety and reliability is going to be the thing that's going to take DeFi uh, to the broader majority. Um, and that we have a community of individuals who are committed and know how to deliver on that. You know, we sort of think of crypto as it's, it's just an emerging technology. Right. I mean, I, I love crypto. I'm in it every day. But if we zoom out and we look, it's just an emerging technology. And so fortunately, there's already a kind of playbook for the adoption of emerging technologies. And I like to use like the Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm type thing. So I don't know if you can display like a image of that or whatever, but it's basically, you know, this problem of we have these early adopters who love getting their hands, you know, wet in, in technology and using it, and then you have the majority. And there's this this chasm, this difficult period uh, where to traverse in order to get from those um, early adopters to to the majority. And what we've seen historically with other um, emerging technologies is the thing that in that maturity model, the thing that you need is stability, security, and a streamlined UX. And so that's basically what we're focusing on. It's not like you know, through any brilliance, it's just sort of looking at the history of, of adoption and saying, these are the things that matter. And when we look at some of the competitors, like often they'll, they'll focus around like speed and scale. Speed and scale is important and you do need that. Um, but what we haven't heard a lot of and what we're really going out there and driving is that it's going to be this, this safety and reliability that is going to bring on money that's sitting on the sideline, whether it's in the form of institutional capital or the next generation's uh, deployment to capital for financial services. Yeah, no, I understand the the difference. I, I guess the question I have for you there is, and I guess a lot of people would have is, is it safety and reliability in the sense of developers building because they have a new set of tools or is it safety in the form of securing the network or a mix of both? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so in, in my opinion, it's both. So this is safety and reliability in the sense of the technology, 
right? So the, you know, and then I think the reason that that gets a lot of attention is because actually building out this technology is very hard. When I, when I go to like the days of the ad tech companies and you think about dropping, you know, a piece of software and SDK into a mobile application, what is that mobile application? Effectively, that's closed source software that is not money or financial in nature, right? So developing that, you still have to create security practices, but developing uh, within that within that structure, as opposed to today with something like Kava, where it's open source technology and it's money. So it's like literally the hardest. So technology, that technology part is, is definitely a, a large component of safety. But when you, when you sort of peel that back, process, I think is equally important. How are these applications being built? What quality assurance mechanisms are being are being applied for the release of the software? Um, and then, particularly for crypto, it's financial. So, like, what protections are in place for users in the event that bad things happen? And we can kind of dive into each of those at some point if you like. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to dive into those. Um, the, your last comment was particularly important. Um, let's definitely dive in there. What what would those protections be? Well, yeah. So let's examine, you know, something that happened like in the Ethereum space. So with, okay, I'll, I'll just, I won't pick on a particular project, but things happen, right? So there, there will be attacks. There will be things that happen and none of, you know, none of these developers or the, the initial people who develop protocols want to see their users lose money, right? That's not what we got. That's what, not what most of these, really most of these folks got in to the business for, but it happens. So what do we do when it happens? And for most of the stuff that we think that we observe, it's a kind of, it's an after the fact type calculation. It's like, oh shoot, this thing happened. Some users lost money. How are we gonna, how are we gonna address that? Um, Kava community um, in contrast takes a step to get ahead of it. So in a couple of months ago, we created a safe fund. Uh, that has right now a little bit under $100 million in it. And that is a general purpose insurance fund for if and, you know, knock on wood when um, bad things happen. And then we can talk about, so, so this is that kind of like safety, this is that sort of the infrastructure layer that we're laying out. When you build protocols with composability on top of it, um, not only does that increase usage and UX, but it also increases that reliability. So an example of that, which we can get into in the future, is we just launched KavaSwap. Well, we have this basket, we have this bucket of asset right now, this general purpose Seifu fund that has a little under $100 million in it, but it's denominated in a volatile asset, right? Well, obviously, you know, things tend to go wrong when all prices are crashing. So what we can do now with uh, KavaSwap and in a relatively short order is to be able to put up a proposal where some portion of that basket that basket gets programmatically liquidated to a set of stable coins, which would provide even further protection for users in the event that that bad things happen. And by the way, this is part of that kind of Toyota way of going. So we wanted to implement uh, an insurance policy, and we actually like sort of went around and talked to everyone that we could in the industry. You know, and at best you could get insurance on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that that's not going to cut it when users have hundreds of millions of dollars um, on the line. So it was effectively the Kava community that decided to underwrite the safety of the 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 users of the platform. That's that's really helpful. I guess my question for you is, you know, let's say we create an app on Kava 
and let's say something goes wrong, right? You know, what's the process like for figuring out whether, you know, the devs were malicious or whether you should really, you know, use the insurance fund to back um, users? Like, what's the give and take there? Governance. So it, it comes down to the, the community deciding and voting. And I think that that's what it, what it has to be. So the kind of the final part that I'll, we have, a, we have a nice graphic. I don't know if I'll be able to show it, but basically it's like this question of how do you find the intersection between something like Bitcoin, which is great and decentralized, but doesn't really move or change very quickly and something centralized like Coinbase, BlockFi, whatever, which is great and can move nimbly, but is sort of by virtue of its existence, not decentralized. How do you get somewhere in between? And um, the model that we kind of use, like, again, hearkening back to like the, the um, ad tech day for, for mobile apps is, you know, you can think of these things, Kava or the other platforms as financial operating systems, just like you can think of Android and iOS um, as mobile application operating systems. And we saw Apple take an approach of curation. So they went out and they said, as opposed to Android, and they said, so you can put apps onto this platform for users to consume, but they're going to be curated. Now they're going to be curated through Apple, right? Because we're a centralized organization, but we're going to enforce that floor. We're going to enforce that bar of UX and reliability to further the adoption of this platform and these applications in contrast to something like Android, which says a developer just throw it up and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll release in 24 hours. Kava is coming out and saying, that we're taking that approach for the community is taking that approach for financial operating systems. It's a curated process. So no application can be deployed on the Kava blockchain that isn't reviewed and voted in by the Kava token uh, governance group. And so, you know, there's trade-offs there, right? We don't have 17 protocols on Kava today yet. Um, it's a slower process that way, but it's a safer and more reliable process. That's it's an interesting trade-off. I, I guess what would if someone pushed back and said, you know, hey Scott, you don't have the creative ability to have like a thousand apps on here, so you don't have that petri dish to build. Yeah. But on the other hand, you have the curation, so you know users don't get scammed. Like, is it hard though to figure out what the most powerful apps are going to be without that creativity? Like, how do you go from you know, a thousand apps to being curated on Kava, like, cause you want the exploration phase, but you also want the curation to protect people. How do you yeah. do both? Yeah. And, and, and this is going to be like a little more Scott versus the Kava community, but Scott's answer to that is, I mean, you can't have it all, right. You, you can't have it all. And so for us, for me, um, Kava is not about, you know, yeah, you can't both have like wild exploration and uh, safety, right. They're, they, they're not going to be they're, They just don't, they don't come together. So I think that platforms like Ethereum are great places uh, as, a, as a playground for people to try different things and to have that risk profile of trying new things. And Kava is a great platform for uh, taking those open source pieces of protocols and applying them to a, a broader audience. And that's how I would see uh, Kava positioning itself in the future is um, when you look at the, let's call it hundreds um, I don't know, maybe if not thousands, let's say hundreds of various protocols that have been deployed onto Ethereum, you know, maybe 1% of them made it um, to, to actual size. And so Kava is about that 2% um, that actually make it and being able to apply that 2% to the a broader audience. 
And, and how does the community kind of curate? Like, how do they decide? Like, are there, you know, smart contract devs, auditors, security guys, like saying yes or no, or how does it, how does it all happen under the hood? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, it's, you know, hindsight's kind of 2020, but I, I think that it was, there, there had to have been at least some portion of luck um, in terms of how we got to, to where we are today. You know, this is again, back in like 2018 or whatever, when DeFi and times weren't as they were now. And so that, that generation process, the way that kind of Kava got out there, you know, the Kava labs itself um, had to offer a very large portion of the, of, of the Kava tokens uh, to external community, just kind of get the thing going. And so it did end up uh, being this case where it was a, a wide range of, of folks who had exposure to the asset. And then a lot of them ended up being just some of the, like the largest, most trusted organizations in the industry. And then, you know, I guess there, there is some component of luck for us kind of being able to build up momentum and headway there. And now, yeah, we're at, we're at a spot where basically there's, it, it's decentralized in the sense that even if Kava Labs wanted to, uh, we don't hold the majority of tokens. We don't hold really close to the majority of tokens. And there's been that kind of balance of participation with people um, outside of Kava Labs. So I think one part of that's luck. I think another part of it is was in the decision process. You know, for the 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 sort of some you know the pros and cons of the the Cosmos ecosystem. One thing that they they did do, I think, a really good job of is push and espouse that that sort of that decentralized community nature. And so um, being built on that application, being built on that software, we did inherit um, some of that as well. It's, it's kind of hard to say like exactly how it came together. It's sort of some combination, uh, but pretty happy with uh, with where it's at today. Yeah, I was going to ask you kind of the differences between 2017 and today, but we can, we can close out with that um, in a bit. I'll, I'll mark it down because I want to get your thoughts there. But yeah. I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about What's being built on Kava? Specifically, Kava Swap comes to mind. You guys launched recently, so the team has 24 hours was on the 29th, launched on the 30th. You got your certic audit. Can you dive into Kava Swap a bit? What it is, approach? Why you're so excited? Yeah. So Kava Swap is a constant product AMM built on the uh, built on the Kava platform, and um, it's live today, um, and it's swapping. And it's actually really. I mean, I love AMMs. They're they're such a useful. Um, tool in composability. They're actually kind of like a critical tool um, in composability. So we have Kava Mint, um, which allows users to um, supply assets and borrow a, a, right now a, a stablecoin USDX. We have Kava Lend, which is a programmatic money market, which allows people to supply assets and borrow assets. And then now we have Kava Swap. And so these to me are kind of this in, in an earned product, like a, a robo-advisor product, are basically the core ingredients needed um, for users to be able to do, you know, 80, 90% of the uh, DeFi um, uh, financial um, services that they that they want to have access to. And so, yeah, I mean, what, what we really like about CavaSwap is, is this kind of engine to be able to provide increased user experience and composability. For the user, so I mentioned that case where, um, outside of users just transacting and being able to swap, pay off their loans more, pay off their loans that are denominated in USDX more easily, not needing to go outside of the platform to you know adjust their portfolio, we're able to leverage it for uh, more general protocol concerns like the the Safeu fund, 
being able to take a, a, a single risk asset and diversify it into a basket um, that, that can then be pro- programmatically used. And I mean, there's other, there's other things that we can do too, right? I mean, one of the, this is, this is kind of getting out there a little bit more, but this just shows you the power of, of composability and a, uh, and a motivated community willing to push that forward is there's no reason, you know, that we can't have the protocol itself be one of the large, uh, market makers, um, in the AMM for a number of different tokens, right? Just like we have a community fund that's there for general purpose insurance. You can do the same thing for 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 provisioning liquidity for assets on the network. That's helpful overview. And like, what what's the TLDR way to think about it? Like, is it similar to Uniswap V2's pricing model, and or how how do we think about like slippage and pricing and, and liquidity provision and things like that? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a constant product. That it's so the the first version of it has shipped as a constant product AMM. Um, so it has a lot of the bells and whistles and features of Uniswap V2. And so one of the things that we're leveraging there then is as we go, as the Kava platform now in Q3 and Q4 goes to um, allow deposits for the world's largest assets. So we'll be targeting USDC and ETH tokens on Ethereum, Bitcoin, and then going onto other networks. Kava Swap is going to be a place where you can trade in a decentralized manner, get the benefits of access anywhere in the world 24-7. No. KYC, the, the largest coins in crypto, um, not just you know coins on the Ethereum network, not just coins that can be accessed through Binance.com um, on Binance Smart Chain. So it, it's you know that from from that perspective, right? It's somewhat similar to what um, you know like ThorChain is trying to accomplish, um, but in this model, we're not coupling the transaction, we're not coupling the cross-chain transaction with the swapping. The Kava platform is a place to easily deposit coins from any of these large ecosystems, and then you can swap them and do other financial services with them on the Kava platform. Got it. And I mean, the cross-chain aspect is one of the most interesting ones to me here. Like, I would love to kind of dive into that a bit if we can. Like, you know, just, I mean, securing assets on multiple chains is is very hard. I mean, yeah, I've yeah. seen kind of how centralized bridges could be in the past. Like, if you could dive a bit into the cross-chain aspect, I think that would be really interesting, especially because like there's no question anymore on multi-chain future. It's it's clearly yeah. yeah. So I guess I don't know, maybe a little known fact. We've since June of last year, um, we've had a bridge up and running with the Binance chain. It's one of the first like ones actually in production, and that's had over 1.5 billion dollars move through it. Um, no, you know, no KYC, no limits, whatever, and no hacks. Uh, it's, you know, again, knock on wood, um, it's run pretty falsely. That took a Herculean effort, and we learned a lot from that process. Um, but the, I mean, they're hard. It's hard. Uh, it's it, like there's no doubt about it. It's it's harder than I would want it to be. And that's working between two at the so Binance chain is also a Cosmos SDK chain. Um, that's that's doing it between two Cosmos SDK chains, which ha- like the surface exposure to gotchas is like at least an order of magnitude smaller, if not two, um, between two, you know, EBM layers. So it is, it is tricky. And so basically this comes down to that process, right. Of how, uh, like as an organization or how, you know, as a community, do you think about deploying code? Uh, again, not, I'm not going to like point to any specific project, but we certainly look uh, to other projects for inspiration and then the opposite, what not to do. 
Um, and you can tell that there are organizations that have process. And when they ship stuff, you can tell by the cadence of them shipping it and by the uh, by the quality of the code that is shipped that like, you know, that organization has stuff that you go look at some just spaghetti monsters and you're like, I'm pretty sure something bad's going to happen there. Um, so so there, there's sort of, there's the general process around that. Uh, we certainly invest a ton of time and money and effort into building that up and are continuously doing that um, on the engineering side. And then I think that there's just a matter of, of uh, just good old fashioned, like startup mentality, iterative thinking, right? So I love the Cosmos guys. I love IBC. IBC's working. It took them four years to deploy that. Taking four years to build something and deploy it and then see if, if uh, folks are going to use it is like the biggest red flag in, in my opinion, in startup it, with a startup mentality, you, you want to be iterative. So I think that when taking an iterative approach, you want to be able to release a feature like a quote bridge um, that has a minimum set of features to get the job done and then roll out features on top of that pursuant to usage, right? And so with that in mind, I guess the other thing is um, we tend to, at least internally and then throughout the community, move away from this notion of like the, the, this kind of cross chain as being some, you know, really difficult and obscure thing um, to thinking about it more akin to just deposits um, and withdrawals on exchanges, uh, which is kind of a, a cross chain operation from Ethereum to, you know, Binance's SQL database. Um, we think about it more like like that type of deposit and withdraw feature, but the address that you're interacting with is obviously not owned by a single entity. Um, it's owned by at least a multi-sig, or in the case of the construction that we will roll out for for the Ethereum bridge in a in a second version, uh, it'll be like the valid, validator set of Cosmo. Got it. I can dig into that more too if you want, but. Yeah, yeah, would love. I mean, any tidbits you can give on, like, I guess the the technical security would be pretty interesting. I mean, the the process that you guys run through is pretty clear, but I guess the one question most people have is, you know, how are funds like actually protected in the cross chain world, right? Like, is it you know, like people dive into threshold signatures and all this stuff, and, and that might be a whole other podcast in and of itself. But anything you could share there would, would be very helpful because the cross chain. Uh, you know, value flow is obviously top of mind for most people right now, especially as they're aping mm. into, you know, mm. farms and plays on different chains. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Polly is a great example of that. Right. I don't know if you dove when I literally, when we dove into the poly hack, we were like, that's cool. <laughs> like, like, obviously it's bad <laughs> that those people lost a lot of money, but like, that was a pretty sweet hack and really showcases the, like the got shoes of, of Ethereum. Right. And I'm not like going to, you know, obviously Ethereum is great and it is sort of one of the main reasons why there's so much attention in the space it is a very, very difficult, uh, very difficult space to develop applications safely. It's just super hard. The bar is very high. And so the question was, yeah, I mean, digging into that process, how are the funds secured, right? Yeah. So, and, and again, I think this is that practical sense of they should be secured both technically in process, like process to ensure that delivery of the um, of the software is done in a way that that makes sense. And then also financially, what what backings are there, right? So even though we have not used it to date, there's a fund of hundred million, roughly $100 million sitting there in the event that something goes wrong with the hot wallet, cold wallet setup on Binance chain, right? So um, that's, that's, again, the community underwriting it. 
So I think that, yeah, at a high level, there's basically in technology, there's a couple of different models. We're pretty interested in the hot wallet, cold wallet um, model that uh, most exchanges employ, so like Coinbase. It's a very, so it's a trade-off. Uh, it has a nice user experience. So one of the things that I actually don't like about the uh, the Binance bridge, and then in some cases with IBC, is it's a specific uh, transaction type. So that means you need a specific wallet that can handle that transaction type. One of the things that we strive for in the UX of any of the future um, technologies that we employ to allow users to deposit funds onto Kava is that they can do it from you know, their, their Coinbase account. You can just deposit funds onto the Kava platform from your Coinbase account as if you were depositing funds onto Binance or any other exchange. We think that's important as opposed to like having to withdraw them on-chain and doing a special type of transaction in a special wallet. Um, so I think that's important. Again, reducing uh, reducing the the variables or amount of things that can go wrong um, and then scaling it out uh, once you find something that you like. And then if you can, try and apply some form of financial assurance or insurance around uh, the process for users that are using it in the early days. Oh, that, that's really helpful. I appreciate that. And just to round out the discussion here, what assets are supported today on Swap? And I guess, what are you planning in the future? Yeah, so the assets that we've on, so there's the, there's the native Kava assets. So there's Kava token, hard token, which powers the um, Kava lend. And then there's the swap token, which powers uh, Kava swap, as well as USDX. And then the non-native tokens that we've onboarded through uh, the Binance chain is BNB, BUSD, BTC, and XRP. And uh, in the end of Q3 or early Q4, uh, we'll be opening up deposits for USDC and Ethereum token. Then I don't know if you've seen, but we were able to strike a deal, a partnership with uh, Circle to do uh, a native uh, USDC integration onto Kava as well. So we'll sort of preempt that with allowing users to deposit USDC through the Ethereum blockchain and then the circle integration where users can deposit directly. Then I'm, I'm, I'm particularly excited about that because in my view, assets like USDC are the kind of future of how to onboard dollars into crypto. And so having that direct pipeline of dollars in a bank account to into Kava to be earning is exactly what we're focused on. And, and to round out that kind of usability thing, right? Like if we look about kind of where's DeFi going, where is it going to be in the future? I think it looks a lot like what we saw with the centralized crypto offerings today. When you go back five years ago and you look at how do you get Bitcoin, right? You go to Mt. Gox or you go, you know, hand to hand with local Bitcoins. Now you have a company in Coinbase that integrates its products seamlessly and provides a safe user experience. This is exactly what Kava is going for, for DeFi in five years. Right now you have a fragmented set of offerings with varying degrees of reliability and safety. In the future, you're going to see an offering in Kava that's similar to what you see in Coinbase. There's one place where you can go to easily deposit your funds and be able to interact with these products in a safe and easy way. And in our opinion, that's the better end game, right? Like if all crypto ends up being is a few large centralized players effectively collecting rents on people trading these coins, that's not going to get us to this new financial rails, which is actually going to open up broad adoption, not just for institutional capital, but for the next generation of wealth that can access financial services in a meaningfully different way. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, 
where do you think the future of DeFi is going? I mean, what, one of my more, I guess, timely questions for you on this is, it feels to me like, obviously, NFTs in a craze right now, it's it's getting adoption, people are understanding it, and they're, they're you know, they're loving it for the masses. But it's kind of wild because, you know, when, when we were aping into crypto a couple of years ago, like we had to understand oracles and bridges and risks and, you know, liquidations and CDPs and keepers and stable coins and interest rates. Now people go on OpenSea because they like a picture. Like, yeah. I'd love to hear your take on, you know, DeFi uptake and NFTs. Yeah. And I'll go back to, you know, if we just put that lens of an emerging technology on, I think it fits very nicely into that model that crossing the chasm model. You and I are early adopters. I mean, we like that. I mean, I, I am a weirdo. I like digging into that stuff and understanding what's this, what's that, but the average, cause they got other things on their mind. They don't, you know, they don't have the time to do that. That average late majority, late majority, they just want the value proposition. And I think for, for, for that, those people, it's earning opportunity for, that's not to say that NFTs and that stuff might not have value, but for sure, people want to earn more money faster, right? Like if they can, and in a safe way. And so being able to provide a user, not having to go and click a bunch of buttons and do all this stuff, but literally put their money into a single robo-advisor account that earns for them and converts the yield in kind back to them. And they look at something like five, eight, 10% versus 1%. That's, I think, the thing that's going to really open up adoption and have more money come on. And the thing that Again, what we're pressing, I think the thing that really holds that back right now is that most people now, fortunately, are aware of crypto. They have an understanding globally of what Bitcoin is, but they don't have a way to put that money in either that they feel is safe or they have access to, right? Coinbase and BlockFi are doing a great job of that right now, but like I can't borrow on Coinbase Borrow, right? And people outside of the US have a difficult time using some of these, some of these services, so being able to deliver that on a rails that is truly open 24-7, you know, no limits, no KYC, um, but in a way that Kava can be that custodian of their funds for that next generation of wealth and present it to them with a UX that is as good or better than our centralized competitors. I think that's what's going to really open this thing up. Awesome. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And I'd love to kind of close out with two questions. I mean, the first one is, you know, Kava's roadmap. We could take that however we want. And the last thing is, I guess, intertwined with your roadmap, where you guys are going, I'd love for you to kind of share how people can, can get involved, you know, whether they're developers, whether they're users, traders, um, it'd be helpful to kind of tie that in with the roadmap itself too. Yeah. So we're hiring. Uh, so if you are a developer or anything like that, um, kava.io slash careers, um, we'd love to talk to you guys. Um, we're actively growing out the team and growing out the community so that we can move faster. Yeah, in terms of, of terms of where we're going, I mean, this is this is kind of one thing that we do internally for the company is sort of setting that vision of, of where do we go. And I really like using uh, kind of like what uh, SpaceX uh, has done for their thing. Where you know you could say you know hey we're going to go to Mars our mission is to go to Mars right and um, people can either be like wow that's the coolest thing I've ever heard or like I can rent a van and go to Death Valley like why would I want to go to Mars you know that place is that that's great so you want to you want to present something that either motivates people or doesn't if it doesn't motivate them fine you don't you know you don't need to be a part of it and what I think that um, SpaceX did a particularly good job of is they said we're going to create a city that has a million people on it. This is a state in the future that any employee can visualize that we're going towards and implies success for the business. 
So similarly, internally at Kava, that motivating factor is to get 100 million crypto native users into crypto. We hope with Kava platform, but just generally the ability to exist completely on this financial rails. Um, this is what we're building towards. This is the number that we're trying to get to and just sort of motivating the ability to get there in the future. And then how we get there, I mean, that's the process of, of discovery, right? My current belief is the way that we get, we know that we get there through making sure that it is safe and reliable for those people to get on and that it's easy to use. Um, but in particular, we love hacks like direct uh, USDC integration, where a person now with their bank account can just send money to Coinbase and deposit it directly onto Kava without having to do anything fancy. And then with the release of a, of a robo-advisor service that we'll have in Q1, they can just click one of three buttons and they're you know off to the races earning at a rate that is way more competitive than anything that they can find in the traditional financial offerings. That's awesome, Scott. I really appreciate you coming on, man. A lot going on. You've been around for a while. I always like to hear people's stories who are, it's, it's crazy how different podcasts are with people who were here for a while versus new people in the space. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of uh, viewpoint for, from somebody that's been here for a long time. So I appreciate you coming on, exciting times, and we'll share links in the show notes to, uh, to everything you mentioned. Yep. Yeah. And there's a lot more, there's a lot more time. Uh, basically, I think we're still. I mean, it's it's obvious we're still in the early days, but I hope in three years. Well, I hope I talked to you before three years, but in three years, I hope we're going to see stuff that's actually quite a bit different than today. We'll have yeah. a similar sentiment. No, I'm I agree. I can't wait till a couple of years from now. We're going to be looking back and say, "Hey, we were there with NFTs. Now we have magic." Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Scott, thanks so much. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Celo is an open platform for mobile-first DeFi with a vision of bringing decentralized financial tools and services to anyone with a mobile phone. Eco-friendly, Ethereum-compatible, and governed by Celo holders, Celo's proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and automatic daily carbon offsets make Celo the world's first carbon-negative blockchain, offsetting over 2,200 tons of carbon to date. To learn more about how to lend, earn, and stake with Celo's growing family of platform-native stablecoins, visit Celo.org today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.